So as Easter is coming, coming up in two weeks, you know, let us prepare our hearts uh, for the greatest display of divine love and justice. If you really think about the cross, it is heart-wrenching, and it is it's really horrific. You think about you know, what Christ had to endure for us, and yet it is so also mind-boggling uh, to see what, what God has accomplished for us through Christ. And I think um, you know, it's really easy, to, uh, easy for us to get just wrapped up in daily grind, especially during these days, as the work life and the home life, the line between them, is blurry. And maybe some of us may not have even realized that it is, Easter is right around the corner. And I think one way for us to prepare our hearts is to really reflect on who he is and its implications. When we talk about Jesus Christ, Christ is a Greek equivalent of Hebrew word Messiah, right? And what does that mean, Messiah or Christ? It means the, uh, the anointed one or the chosen one. But now, how are we to understand what it means? What does it really mean? And the question that I want to pose to all of us is, do we know what we believe and what we confess? We all think that we do. I mean, we can include God and Jesus in our vocabulary, but it is entirely possible that we do not truly grasp who he is. Or maybe we bring with us certain expectations about who he is, who God is, and how he should operate in this world, as I just quickly prayed. There was a, um, when, uh, you know, in his book, uh, Lee Strobel, uh, The Case for Christ, he talks about a man who used to, alongside Billy Graham, an evangelist, who used to just go on all these evangelists, you know, just the crusades back in the day, and would preach the gospel to multitudes of people along with Billy Graham. But then he came to that, his soul got so troubled by the evil and suffering in this world. And it really questioned, it really questioned him How can God allow suffering and evil in this world? How can a good God, how can an almighty God, can he not really stop sufferings? There are so many people suffering in this world. People, you know, just the children. um, He said, um, according to to the book, he was looking at the picture in the Time magazine, uh, the children in Africa starving to death. How can God allow that in this world? And that really troubled him and said, God cannot be like this. So he walked away from, uh, from the faith. After all that preaching that he has done, he says, I cannot believe in a God like that. At times, we bring with us certain idea about God and how he should operate, how he should work, how he should do things for me, how he should work in this world. 
and we think we already have an idea or a correct understanding of God. But that's not really true. Just because we have an idea about God, even though we may use Christian terms, biblical terms, that does not mean that we may have, have the right understanding. Just this past week, the mass shooting in Atlanta that left eight people dead, where six of them were Asian women, and four of them are of Korean descent. Um, it's, you know, as the shooter um, really targeted, you know, the Asian spas. Of course, the media, you know, is just portraying as, oh, you know, just, he just had an addiction, right? And he just wanted to just get, uh, remove all the temptations. So he had to just take, you know, <laughs> time to drive to different counties to only target the Asian spas, right? The Asian hate crime is on the rise, and it's really sickening to see how even the shooter is portrayed, right? Um, you know, the spokes guy, right? He said, oh, he was just on the, uh, at the end of his rope, and he was having a bad day, right? That's how he described the shooter, right? Um, and um, so it's, it's really troubling. And uh, to me, what's even more troubling is his supposed, uh, supposedly a Christian background. Um, I think uh, according to the report, his Instagram bio self-described him, right? His uh, self-described bio says, pizza, guns, music, family, and God. This pretty much sums up my life. It's a pretty good life, right? And he was a member of a local church. And supposedly there was a, uh, I didn't even bother to look up, I don't, I don't wanna focus on the, uh, on the perpetrator, but supposedly there was like a video of him even being baptized at the church. But it didn't really stop him from committing this massacre. And um, once again, they were saying, oh, it's not racially motivated. You know, why you guys are so, like, you know, going crazy o over this? But, you know, it may not have been confirmed, but there is a Korean newspaper that reported that there was a witness at the spa at that time heard him shouting some anti-Asian things, right? That I'm going to kill all the Asians, right? You see, people may claim to believe in God, but then obviously, for a guy like this, who mentioned God, and supposedly he was, you know, part of the church, and it was reported that his father is a pastor, right? and yet, even though he claimed to believe in God, obviously it's not consistent with the God of the scriptures, as revealed in the scriptures. Just as the, you know, we, we, I think Pastor Jay talked about, you know, the critical race theory that is an ideology that we should really watch out for. But so is a Christian nationalism. Right? It's the belief that the United States is defined by Christianity and the government should take proactive steps to preserve it that way. Right? In short, it is a, it's a fusion of American uh, civic life and Christian faith. Right? Um, it's like, 
you know, Donald Trump, right? Um, you know, during when he was a president, you know, you guys made uh, aware of that that photo that he took, right? Uh, during the uh, like the demonstration that you know the, the the police cleared out the place. There was a church nearby White House, so they cleared out the demonstrator so he could go there and holding up a Bible, right? Um, kind of symbolizing, oh, you know, this United States has to be you know, preserve this thing, right? Christianity. Right? We are being just assaulted from every, uh, uh, every uh, angle. Scholars like Samuel Huntington argue that America is defined by Anglo-Protestant past and that we will lose our identity and our freedom if we do not preserve our cultural inheritance. What it does is it distorts Christian faith and it distorts American democracy. A lot of people who stormed the Capitol building, they were holding up the signs, Jesus saves, right? It's all about God. And yet, their understanding was quite flawed, to say the least. Instead of being pulled to the left or right, we must always turn to the Scripture to inform us of what the Scripture says and who we are to believe. Do we understand what the scripture says instead of being influenced by the media or the ideologies from the left and the right? Do we really understand who Christ is? We all say, yes, Jesus Christ. But do we really know what the scripture is saying this passage that we just read takes place during the Passion Week as Luke, the Gospel of Luke, is nearing its climax, culminating in the, the, the crucifixion and resurrection. The tension is building. The kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God are, are on collision course. And we see here that Jesus is increasingly confronted by the religious establishment. So you have to understand, this is like right before he's about to go to the cross. If you read in verses, uh, in the same chapter, Luke chapter 20, verse 1 and 2, uh, it says this. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. Right? And if you go to like verse 19, go to the next, uh, in verse 19, it says, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they per- perceived that he had told this, uh, told this parable against them, but they uh, feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Right? I mean, they're just looking at every turn. Verse 27, There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. So you can just see the religious establishment, whether it be the chief priests, Pharisees, scribes, the spies, 
Sadducees, whoever they may be, whoever is in power, whoever was well-established religiously, they are looking and they're trying to attack him. Because to them, Jesus has been a serious threat and thorn in their sight. Because he was really stirring up. And really just all that they held, all the belief that they held, right, was being challenged by him. And they just could not stand. But there is just a no-name guy. He's not even from Jerusalem. He never just grew up in the, he was never groomed within their circle. He was from Galilee. Because during that time, as Jerusalem was the cultural, you know, political and religious center. So if you wanted to just, uh, just rise up through the rank, right, you had to just go through a proper channel. You had to be a Pharisee or you had to be a Sadducee or just, you know, different ways and just make sure that you just go through the rank and be recognized by their own. And that's how, how you rise to the top and gain power. But then there comes this, no, uh, just a man from Galilee out of nowhere in a boondock and just causing all this sensation. And people are following him. They couldn't stand it. What he taught was absolutely different from what they were teaching, what they, what they believed was the truth. So, you know, up until now, the opponents of Jesus kept testing him and trying to trap him in what he said. How absurd to see that these guys were trying to trap the Son of God with the Scripture, the very author of Scripture that they were trying to trap him with. Right? Can you imagine that? And that's what they were trying to do. But then finally, challenge after challenge, question after question, that they finally realize that they are so overmatched that they keep quiet. And they are not ask Jesus any more questions, right? 39, then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dare to ask him any question. They just ran out of their ammo. I mean, they were just, all right, this question may trap him. This question, if you do this, if you do that, maybe we'll just catch him in something that he says. Hey, teacher, with the... the you know, should we just pay to, uh, you know, uh, pay to Caesar the taxes? You know, so in either answer that he gives, they could trap him. And he says, you know, give to Caesar what belongs to him and give to God what is God's. When there was, you know, the woman that was caught in the act of adultery. Now what do you say? The Mosaic law says this. Right? If you say one, then he's, uh, you know, he will be just violating the Mosaic law. If he says, yeah, just don't do it, then you are also violating the Roman law that they were under. So they just came up with all these questions. They would trap him. And then with every question, he shuts them up. So they ran out and they were like, oh my gosh, there's no way we can just trap him with anything. So they finally become quiet. And now it's, uh, it was a time for Jesus to ask a question. The final controversy, if you will, a theological quiz. And he focuses on the identity of the Messiah. 
because the people's expectation, people's understanding of Messiah was in a certain way. They surely believed in the Messiah according to what is said in the, in, in the Old Testament. So they all believed. They all said the right thing. But Jesus, after they just ran out of questions, now he was challenging them about their understanding, their belief about who Messiah was. The expectation at the time of a Davidic Messiah had its beginnings during the exile. In the Old Testament time, the people's idea of a Messiah was the reestablishment of the throne of David and the deliverance of Israel from its foreign oppressors. And this, expect, uh, this expectation, it, it was when it started really building momentum than when they were being taken captivity in Babylon, right? And this expectation came from a combination of disappointment and confidence. Disappointment at the destruction of the Jerusalem by the Babylonians. They were utterly shocked. They believed that's where the presence of God is. They were the chosen people. Jerusalem is where the temple of God is. All the people around the world are to just gather in Jerusalem and worship God, offer sacrifices, and worship God. That's what they believed. It was invincible. And yet, God allowed Babylonians, a pagan nation, to come and absolutely destroy and raise Jerusalem. So Israelites were absolutely, utterly shocked that this could happen. They were bitterly disappointed. But at the same time, they were confident, too. Confidence in the faithfulness of God, who had made an everlasting covenant with David to establish David's kingdom forever through his offspring. In the Old Testament, there are many promises that God is giving that through the descendant of David, that God would establish an eternal, everlasting kingdom. Right? So they also believed, so they still had that faith that there is somebody, even though Jerusalem was laid in ruin, it's absolutely destroyed, but the Messiah will come and reestablish the throne of David and restore the former glory of Israel and David. We believe in that. So from there, for hundreds of years, that was their expectation of who the Messiah was. Prophets such as Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Haggai, and Zechariah spoke of the righteous branch who would accomplish all this. So generally, the Messiah, at the time, by the time of Jesus, was thought to be a royal figure, a powerful political or military leader who would restore all this. Just really, once again, instill that pride of the Jewish nation. So their understanding of Messiah was an earthly and nationalistic figure. That is why even though people, including his disciples, believed Jesus to be the Messiah, their idea, their understanding of him was really wrong. Yes, they say, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah, but their very idea of who Messiah is, what he should do, was completely off. 
even in Acts 1.6, this is right after Jesus, you know, rose from, say this is a resurrected Christ, right? Um, and right before ascension, right? this is what the uh, disciples were asking him. So when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? So even, even after the resurrected Christ, the, the understanding of disciples at the time, finally, he rose from, he broke the power of death. And now what he's going to do, he's a Messiah. That means he's going to restore the kingdom of Israel. He's going to kick out the Roman Empire, right, and establish a proud nation that is Israel. Right before Jesus is being ascended, still in the minds of Peter, James, John, and all these other uh, disciples, they thought that Jesus was going to establish an earthly kingdom. Sure, they believed in the Messiah, but their very idea of Messiah was off target. Just like this guy who said he believed in God, he was baptized. And yet, his idea of God was completely off. One favorite identification of the Messiah among the Jews was to designate him as the son of David. Son of David. A title often ascribed to Jesus. And he actually accepted that title. The blind beggar Bartimaeus, you know, he just cried out, as someone who was born blind, when he, real, when he heard that Jesus was on his way where he was sitting, he would just cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. People were trying to just quiet, and yet he just cried out all the, uh, all the louder. Son of David, referring to him as Messiah. Obviously, his idea of Messiah was, once again, the military political leader that would set them free from Roman oppression. And yet, though he had a flawed understanding, Jesus still accepted that title. He didn't say, no, I'm not a a, a son of David. He never did that. Palm Sunday, right? As Jesus was riding on a uh, a donkey and is entering into into Jerusalem for the last time, people were just, you know, shouting, right? They say, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna. Save us, right? Uh, save, right? Son of David. He never said, hey, guys, uh-uh, that is wrong. No, don't, don't use that title again uh, on me, right? So here, he's testing that identification not as wrong, but as incomplete. So he calls their attention to an uh, accepted messianic psalm. The psalm that we read uh, during our call to worship, Psalm 110, right? Our uh, call to worship passage. And there, it says, The Lord starts with, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, your footstool. This psalm expresses the hope of what Israel's ideal king will be like. Solomon and down, when each king ascended to Israel's throne, people hoped that maybe this king would be all that the promised line should be. They were looking to each king. Every time they were coronated, they said, is he the one? Is he the one that is the Messiah that would do all these things? 
But as we read in the books of Kings and Chronicles, no king after David even came close to him, right? What he has done. But the hope remained because it was God's promise of the Messiah. And now Jesus challenges and raises that question in, ver- you know, in, in verse uh, 42, using Psalm, uh, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord, here the Lord uh, is Yahweh. It's the name of God. I am who I am, right? The Yahweh, the, the capital, all capital, it, it refers to uh, the, the name of the Yahweh says to my Lord, not the name of God, but my Adonai, right? In, uh, in Hebrew, it's Yahweh is the name of God, and Adonai is a um, Lord or a master, or it could uh, refer to God or a king, right? But Yahweh says to my Adonai, David calls the Messiah his Lord, so that's the point that uh, Jesus is bringing up to the people. Because why does David show such respect? Because he's calling God, the Yahweh, and then my Lord, right? Messiah, right? Why does David show such respect to his descendant? Because the Messiah is a descendant of David. Culturally, earlier generation. Generations were regarded as greater and wiser than the present one. A father does not show a bow to a son. A son bows to his father and show his respect. It's just like that in Asian culture, right? They even do ancestral worship. They worship the ancestors because they are considered greater and wiser than us. So by popular definition, David was more important than any of his descendants. So how could David call the Messiah his Lord, his master, his Adonai? What does he, why does he submit to the, uh, to the Messiah? I mean, David is ancestor of Messiah. It's backwards here. Can you imagine your grandfather kneeling before you and saying, oh, the great one, oh, the wise one, I am not worthy of your presence. That's just unthinkable, right, for your grandfather to kneel before you and just like lift you up and just pay just great respect to you. So he's asking that question. Why is David calling the widely accepted Messianic Psalm, here the Lord is the Messiah, his descendant, but why is he calling him, his descendant, his Lord? And the passage ends here with no answer. And Luke moves on to another story. The question is posed for reflection. And that is the intention of Luke for the rest of the gospel. Who is Jesus? If he's the Messiah, then is this the Messiah that you understand or you uh, understand it, believe him to be? Is that the right understanding of Messiah? He's asking and challenged the original audience who all thought that Messiah had to be this military or powerful political leader that would establish earthly kingdom. Is he who he really is? 
Oh, is Mossad, that is what he's, he's to be? Is that your expectation? The issue of Jesus' identity will be the focal point of debate on his way to the cross. Who is he really? Is he just a miracle worker? A highly regarded moral teacher with many memorable lines that we can kind of quote in all kinds of situations? Is he a superhero of ancient days? Could he possibly be a god himself? He can't possibly be, can he? He's challenging and he's asking the readers, the audience. The fierce debate about who he is reaches a crescendo in the Passion Week. Right? People are, who is he really? People are dying to know. And Jesus here is teaching that the Messiah is not simply the son of David, a mere earthly figure, as everybody thought he, he, he was. He is a transcendent being whose glory and authority far surpass that of David. The son of David is not a wrong description of the Messiah, but it's an incomplete one because of the deficient understanding of the Messiah itself. He is the Son of God, and therefore he is David's Lord. So if David shows such respect to the promised king, shouldn't the Jewish leadership also? He refused to conform to people's expectation of he should be and what he should do. His kingdom does not come by violence because that's what they were expecting because they were under the oppression of Roman government. So he said, for us to be set, truly set free, there has to be a leader that will just galvanize all of us and just really defeat this enemy, these pagans. Let's defeat them by violence. That was their expectation of a Messiah at that time. And Jesus says, no, my kingdom is not of this world. If you hear of any Christian justifying or being sympathetic to violence to achieve their ideals, they don't understand what the kingdom of God is about. If you hear of or read about Christians advocating blowing up, say, abortion clinics or shooting the, the doctors that are performing abortion clinics, uh, uh, performing abortion, or shooting, shooting down women working at the spa to remove the temptation that he's going through. doesn't matter what he claims to be, whether he's baptized or that he says he believes in God. The kingdom of God does not come by violence. They do not truly understand the God of the Bible. They may think they do. They have a certain idea about what God is like and how he should work in this world. But they do not understand God of the scripture. Jesus does not say he is the Messiah himself here, but it is implied. You know, the reason why he wasn't really explicit here, or any other places for that matter, 
Because he like, never really like, explicitly, I am the, the Messiah, right? He never says it. It's because he wanted to avoid any tendency on the part of the people to view him as a nationalistic and military leader. If he just identifies himself. But yeah, okay, I am, I'm the guy, you know, just, I'm the Messiah. Then they say, aha, uh-huh, right? Let's just take him. Some people try to take him by force, right? And make him king, make him Messiah the way they understood Messiah to be. That's why he never identified himself with that, even though he implicitly accepted the title. What would happen to Jesus soon, right, completes the meaning of the verse. The ascended Jesus is now at, the, uh, at God's right hand. The image of Jesus being seated at God's right hand shows that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. But to these people, they they didn't really understand it. You know, Jesus doesn't really talk about the footstool image, but solely focuses on the position of this figure, the Messiah. But the psalm looks forward to the day when all his enemies are brought into submission. Together with God, he rules with authority, and therefore, he is Lord. It isn't really clear when Jesus raised the question, but now, after his resurrection, we can see clearly that the fulfillment of the promise in the psalm through Jesus Christ. The issue of the the lordship of the Messiah is a critical one because it means that Jesus also has sovereignty, just as the Father. Jesus has authority over salvation and its blessings. That the promised Messiah is not earthly, human, mortal being, but he's divine. In, you know, we read in verse uh, 20, verse 2, you know, by, by what authority, right? Do you say this and teach all these things? A question was asked, that are you doing, by what authority are you doing these things? And at that time, he didn't really answer the question. But now, Jesus is, Jesus is beginning to answer the question. Basically, he's saying that I am David's Lord. I am greater than David. I brought David into existence. Implication is clear. You better recognize me and accept me as your Lord more than a political leader, more than a military leader, more than an earthly figure. I am your God. I am your Lord, your master. He's our Lord, and we owe our existence to him. In his letters, Paul introduces himself as a servant of Christ, emphasizing the lordship of Christ in his life. There is no such thing as a part-time Lord. In our lives, he is either the Lord of all or the Lord of none. So, you know, as we go through this difficult time together, my Facebook post, obviously I have a lot of Asian friends it's blowing up about this whole thing. And I, I, I get it. I understand. I have my mom. I've seen reports of older Asian women being attacked unprovoked. Right? 
it affects me. We have, you know, many, you know, people, right, of Asian uh, descent. So it affects us. But at the same time, we have to understand, right, along with it, that we will not just get swept up in this emotional outburst, but to really just think through, first of all, do we really have a correct understanding, right understanding of who God is? We don't have to be informed or be riled up by what the left is saying or the right is saying right, about this whole thing. And it's just crazy. And, and some of the things that people are saying uh, on the social media, but in the midst of all this, how are we to really, we have to really keep our eyes on Christ. And do we really understand him as revealed in the scripture? Not just some kind of idea about God. We have just you know, picked up bits and pieces of like, information about God throughout our you know, Christian life. And we have an idea about who God is and how he should work. When he does not meet that expectation, just like the Jewish people in the time of Jesus about the Messiah. Right? Are we going to walk away? Or are we going to be bitterly disappointed? God, I thought you should do th- things like this way. Oh, I thought you were such a loving God. How could you do such thing? I thought you would, you know, if I really prayed all this, then I thought, you know, I could just get into this, I could get this job. I could just, all these prayer requests that I've been lifting up, I thought you would answer them in the way that I've asked you to do. But you are not doing it. I asked for healing for someone who has a terminal cancer. I believed that he will be healed, but he never made it. God, how could you do this? How could you just let my beloved family member pass, pass away? How could you? We come to God with our preconceived notion of who he is and how he should work what he should do in our own personal lives, as well as in this society. But God is far greater than our own understanding. We may have the right theology, but our life, that we have to have not not, not only orthodoxy, but orthopraxy, meaning have the right living according to the revealed will of God. May, May we have that kind of mindset as we approach uh, before the throne of grace and to really just ask ourselves, do we really have the right understanding of who he is? And the only way that we can truly understand is looking at the scripture, not what the social media says, not what what other people say, not even what I say or PJ says, but what the scripture says. This is the only source that we must really look to and understand so that we will not bring with us our own idea of who he is and how he should work. May that be our uh, mindset before him. Let's pray.